Section 14, Book 4, Chapter 1, Part 1 of The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 4, Organization. Chapter 1, Part 1. The Inquisitor General and Supreme Council. The superior efficiency of the Spanish Inquisition was largely due to its organization. The scattered subordinate tribunals, which dealt directly with the accused, were not independent, as in the old papal Inquisition, but were under the control of a central head, consisting of the Inquisitor General and a council which, for the sake of brevity, we have called the Suprema. It has been seen how Ferdinand and Isabella, after a few years' experience, obtained from the Holy See the appointment of Torquemada as Inquisitor-in-Chief with power of delegating his faculties and of removing his delegates, a power which gave him absolute control. At first the commission of the Inquisitor-General was held to require renewal at the death of the Pope who issued it, although in the old Inquisition... After considerable discussion, it was decided, in 1290, by Nicholas IV, in his bull Ne Aliquae, that the commissions of inquisitors were permanent. This formality was subsequently abandoned, and, towards the close of the 16th century, the commissions were granted ad beneplacitum, during the good pleasure of the Holy See, and this continued until the end. Similarly, there was a question whether the powers of the inquisitors lapsed on the death of the inquisitor-general. When Mercader of Aragon died in 1516, the Suprema, in conveying the news to the tribunals, instructed them to go on with their work. In some places the secular authorities assumed that they were no longer in office, a royal letter had to be procured to prevent interference with them and, when Cardinal Adrian was appointed, he confirmed their faculties. It became customary for each new inquisitor-general to renew the commissions on his accession, but as there frequently was a considerable interval, the question arose whether, during that time, all the acts both of the Suprema and the tribunals were not invalid. In 1627 it was concluded that they held delegated powers directly from the Pope and not from the Inquisitor-General, so that their faculties were continuous. This was a forced construction, somewhat derogatory to the authority of the Inquisitor-General, and was upset in 1639 when the Suprema decided that the Inquisitor-General could confer powers only during his own life, and therefore each one on his accession confirmed the appointments of all officials during his pleasure, which continued to be the formula employed. This left open the question of the interregnum, which seems to have been somewhat forcibly settled by necessity, as when Guidice resigned in 1716, and his successor, Joseph de Molinese, was serving as auditor of the Rota in Rome. The Suprema, in notifying the tribunals of his appointment, told them that, until his arrival in Madrid, they were to continue their functions. As regards the Suprema, it would appear at first to have been merely a consultative body, 
I have already alluded to the case in which Torquemada ferociously overruled the acts of the tribunal of Medina del Campo, acting autocratically and without reference to the council, as though it had no executive functions. Neither had it legislative powers. The earlier instructions were issued in the name of the inquisitor-general, and, when he desired consultation and advice in the framing of general regulations, he did not confer with the council, but assembled the inquisitors and assessors of the tribunals, who discussed the questions and formulated the rules of procedure, as in the instructions of Valladolid in 1488. The crown, in fact, was the ultimate arbiter, for, in the supplementary instructions of 1485, inquisitors were directed, when doubtful matters were important, to report to the sovereigns for their orders. It was the inquisitor-general also who held the all-important power of the purse. The instructions of Avila in 1498, still issued in the name of Torquemada, fix the salaries of all the officials of the tribunals and add that, when the inquisitors-general see that there is necessity or a special labor, they can make such ayudas de costas, or gratuities, as they deem proper. It was inevitable, however, that the council should acquire power. Torquemada was aging, and, although at this period the tribunals acted independently, convicting culprits and holding autos de fe at their discretion, yet he held appellate jurisdiction which doubtless brought a larger amount of business than he could attend to individually, in addition to his other functions. Cases also must have been frequent in which the consultas de fe, or juntas of experts called in to assist in pronouncing judgment, were not unanimous, or where there were doubts which the local judges felt incompetent to decide. Thus we are told that, in the gathering of inquisitors at Valladolid in 1488, there was full discussion as to the difficulties arising from the incompetence or insufficient number of the consultors, and it was resolved that when there was doubt, or discordia, the technical name for lack of unanimity, the fiscal of the tribunal should bring the papers to Torquemada, who would refer them to the Suprema or to such of its members as he might designate, thus indicating how completely its powers were derived from him and how subordinate was its position. As Torquemada grew more infirm, even though four colleagues were adjoined to him, the importance of the Suprema increased, as is seen in the 1498 instructions of Avila, where this provision wears the altered form that when difficult or doubtful questions arise in the tribunals, the inquisitors are to consult the Suprema and bring or send the papers when so ordered. When Torquemada passed away, in the absence of his vigorous personality, the council rapidly became a determining factor in the organization. In 1499 and in 1503, instructions of a general character, although signed by one inquisitor general, also bear the signatures of two or three members of the council, and are countersigned by the secretary, por mandado de los señores del consejo. A decree of November 15, 1504, although signed by Deza alone, bears that it is with the concurrence, opinion, and vote of the council. It was also assuming the appellate jurisdiction, for it announced to inquisitors, January 10, 1499, that, 
if any parties came before it with appeals it would hear them and administer what it deemed to be justice if papal confirmation of this were lacking it was supplied by leo x in his bull of august the first fifteen sixteen in which he conferred on members of the council in conjunction with the inquisitor-general power to act in all appeals arising from cases of the faith the death of ferdinand january twenty third fifteen sixteen the preoccupations of zemenes who till his death in november fifteen seventeen was governor of spain and the youth and inexperience of charles v gave the suprema an opportunity of enlarging its functions we find it regulating details and giving instructions to the tribunals much after the fashion of ferdinand himself this was facilitated by the fact that it had a president of its own who during vacancies acted as inquisitor-general a practice apparently commenced in fifteen o nine when zemenes on the eve of his departure with his expedition to oran was required by ferdinand to appoint the archbishop of grenada francisco de roja president of the council during his absence the suprema with a permanent president of its own was evidently well fitted to encroach on the functions of the inquisitor-general and as policy varied with regard to this presidency it is perhaps worth while to follow such indications as we can find with regard to it in fifteen sixteen martin zurbano was president of the supreme councils of both castile and aragon and in the interval between the death of mercader and the accession of cardinal adrian he acted as inquisitor-general of aragon in fifteen twenty when charles at coruna was departing from spain he appointed francisco de sosa bishop of almeria as president in fifteen twenty two cardinal adrian on august fifth the day of his departure from tarragona for rome appointed garcia de loasa the future inquisitor-general president of the councils of both castile and aragon it was inevitable that questions should arise as to the comparative standing of such an official and the inquisitor-general sosa as president had a salary of two hundred thousand maravedes while adrian as inquisitor-general had only one hundred and fifty thousand the same as the other members of the council this implied superiority and it was evidently necessary to enforce subordination as when in fifteen thirty nine cardinal tavera was made inquisitor-general and fernando valdez president the latter was told that he was not in any way to modify the orders of the former so when in fifteen forty nine valdez succeeded tavera and fernando nino bishop of sigenza became president charles v wrote to him from brussels march twenty sixth that he was to obey the instructions given to valdez on his accession it was doubtless found that this duplicate headship led to trouble and the position of president was allowed to lapse for in fifteen ninety eight paramo tells us that the inquisitor-general was president in sixteen thirty philip the fourth proposed to revive it under the title of governor of the suprema but the council protested arguing that it had from the beginning functioned successfully without such a head if the office had no special prerogatives it would be superfluous if it had there would be collisions with the inquisitor-general in either case the innovation would be regarded by the public as evidence that the council needed improvement 
This may have postponed, but did not prevent the creation of the office, for, in 1649, we find a president acting. It was probably soon discontinued, for, in some lists of members about 1670, none is designated as president, and if, in 1815, there is one found occupying the seat of honor as dean, he was probably only the senior member. Irrespective of the influence which the office of president may have had, the relations between the inquisitor-general and Suprema were ill-defined and fluctuating. Under Cardinal Adrian we sometimes find the councils acting as though independent, and sometimes Adrian doing the same. In the Aragonese troubles over Juan Prat, the Suprema nowhere appears. Everything is in the name of Adrian or of Charles. During the interval between Adrian's election as Pope, January 9, 1522, and his leaving Spain, August 5th, he and the Suprema acted at times each independently of the other. As the vacancy was not filled until September 1523 by the appointment of Manrique, there can be little doubt that this effacement of the Inquisitor Generalship established precedents for a development of the activity and functions of the Suprema, which, under Manrique, is found taking part in all business. The signatures of the members following his in the letters and decrees. It was rapidly becoming the direct executive and legislative head of the Holy Office. His disgrace and relegation to his see in 1529 could not but stimulate this tendency. During his absence, there are many letters from it submitting questions for his decision, but there are also many to the tribunals, showing that it was acting in full independence. The result of this is seen in 1540 when Cardinal Tavera, in announcing to the tribunals his accession to office, tells them that he will act with the concurrence and opinion of the members of the council, and when, in the same year, he appointed Niccolo Montanañez inquisitor of Majorca. He refers him to what the council writes to him with regard to his duties. The appointing power continued to give to the inquisitor-general a certain predominance, but otherwise he and the Suprema had coalesced into one body, a fact emphasized by a declaration, May 14, 1542, that they formed together but a single tribunal and that there was no appeal from one to the other. Still, there was a primacy of honor in the inquisitor-generalship. When the Instrucciones Nuevas, the elaborate code of procedure embodied in the instructions of 1561, were sent to the tribunals, it was in the name of Inquisitor-General Valdez. But, in the prefatory note, he is made to state that they had been maturely discussed in the council, where it was agreed that they should be observed by all inquisitors. Thus the Suprema had fairly established itself as the ruling power of the Inquisition, and its independent position is described by the Venetian envoy, Simone Contarini, in his relation of 1605, where he says that it is absolute in everything concerning the faith, not being obliged, like the other councils, to consult with the king. The Inquisitor-General, he adds, fills all the offices except the membership of the council whose names are presented to the king. Even in the matter of these appointments, as we have seen, the instructions of Philip II, III, and IV, from 1595 to 1626, 
require the inquisitor general to consult with the suprema in appointing inquisitors and fiscals various documents during the seventeenth century show that the inquisitor general by no means attended all the daily sessions of the council and rarely voted on the cases brought before it in the letters of the suprema a decision reached when he was present records the fact visto en el consejo presente el exmo señor inquisitor general but by far the greater number have no such formula indicating that it acted without him and that its acts were binding another formula frequently employed is consultado con el exmo señor inquisitor general which makes the suprema act and the inquisitor general merely consult yet of course the power wielded by the inquisitor general must have varied greatly with the character of the individual and the influence which he had with the king a man like ars iranoso in such a case as villanueva's or nitard under the queen regent used the tremendous authority of the holy office at his pleasure in the deliberations of the council as early as fifteen fifty one we find decisions reached by a majority vote and when about sixteen twenty five there chanced to be a tie and the imperious pacheco endeavored to decide the matter he was bluntly told that he could not do so his vote counted no more than that of any other member an elaborate account of the procedure dating between sixteen sixty six and sixteen sixty nine tells us that when a letter petition or memorial is read if it is a matter of routine the inquisitor general decides it without taking votes if it is doubtful he takes the vote beginning with the youngest member if it is a question of justice the majority decides if there is a tie it is laid aside until other members can be called in all sign the papers irrespective of how they had voted it is not necessary for the inquisitor general to be present throughout the session it suffices for him to be there for two hours in the morning for what especially concerns his jurisdiction and he need not assist in the afternoons when matters not of faith are discussed with the two adjunct members of the council of castile another writer tells us that it was forbidden to give reasons for the vote and that absent members could vote in writing the relations between the inquisitor general and the suprema thus had grown up without any precise definition and consequently were open to diversity of opinion a writer who about sixteen seventy five drew up an exhaustive account of the working of the inquisition admits that it was a disputed question whether the inquisitor-general could act by himself and dispense with the suprema but he states that the prevailing opinion is that the members are independent and act by immediate delegated papal powers in his absence their acts are final and it is the same when the office is vacant this he says is the invariable custom nor can there be found an instance of his acting without the suprema while the suprema in his absence acts without him as we have seen this was a usurpation grown strong by prescription it was fairly put to the test in seventeen hundred by inquisitor-general mendoza in the trial of fray froilan diaz which was in some respects one of the most noteworthy cases in the annals of the inquisition carlos the second the last of the Habsburgs, who were the curse of Spain, was imbecile equally in mind and body. 
A being less fitted to rule has probably never encumbered a throne, and it was his misfortune, no less than that of his people, that, reaching it in his fourth year, through thirty-five weary years, from 1665 to 1700, he staggered under the burden, while his kingdom plunged ever deeper in misery and humiliation. He was but a puppet in the hands of any intriguing man or woman or artful confessor who might obtain ascendancy. Prematurely old, when he should have been in the prime of manhood, with mental and bodily sufferings continually on the increase, he was restlessly eager for whatever might promise relief. His first wife, Marie-Louise of Orleans, had died childless, and the second, Maria Anna of Newburgh, whom he married in 1690, in the vain hope of an heir, was an ambitious woman who speedily dominated him and ruled Spain through her favorites. It soon became recognized that a successor would have to be selected from among the collateral branches, and, after active intrigues, parties formed themselves in the court in support of the two most prominent aspirants, Philip, Duke of Anjou, grandson of Louis the Fourteenth, who was preferred by the mass of the people, and the Archduke Charles, son of the Emperor Leopold I, whose claims were urged by the Queen. It was the misfortune of Froilan Diaz that he became the sport of the contending factions. In 1698 there was a court revolution. The kingdom was practically governed by the royal confessor, a Dominican named Pedro Matia, who controlled the Queen by enriching and advancing her favorites, prominent among whom was Don Juan Tomas, admiral of castile he asked nothing for himself as he told count oropesa he preferred making bishops to being one carlos hated and feared him and at last secretly unbosomed himself to cardinal portocarrero archbishop of toledo one of the leaders of the french faction no time was lost in utilizing the opportunity and carlos welcomed the suggestion of replacing matia by another dominican Fray Froilan Diaz, a professor of theology in the University of Alcala, a simple-minded and sincere man whose life had been passed in convents and colleges and who knew nothing of intrigues and politics. Carlos asked to have him brought secretly to the court, and Matias' first intimation of his disgrace was seeing Diaz conducted to the king through the royal antechamber. He retired to his cell in the convent del Rosario, where, in a week, he died. It was said of mortification. In April 1698, Froilan Diaz took possession of the seat in the Suprema reserved for the royal confessor. Plots for his overthrow commenced at once, and he unconsciously aided them by fomenting strife in his own Dominican order, so injudiciously that, at the next chapter, his most bitter enemy, Nicolas de Torres Padmora, was elected provincial. His inconsiderate zeal soon led him into still more dangerous paths, which inflamed hostility and afforded opportunity for its gratification. The king's health had been growing steadily worse. The convulsions and fainting spells which afflicted him had constantly increased, and the opinion had spread that he was bewitched. Inquisitor General Valadares had brought the matter before the Suprema, when it had been anxiously discussed without taking action. Valadares had died in 1795 and had been succeeded by the Dominican Juan Tomas de Recoberte, Archbishop of Valencia, 
who in january sixteen ninety eight was secretly consulted by carlos concerning the rumors attributing his sickness to sorcery and was asked to investigate the matter and devise a remedy it was again laid before the suprema but as before the council deemed it too perilous a matter to be meddled with when diaz became a member rocaberte appealed to him and he eagerly promised to assist there were no indications to guide an investigation until diaz chanced to learn that in the nunnery of cangas oviedo there were several nuns demonically possessed who were being exorcised by fray antonio alvarez de arguel a fellow former student of his it had for ages been the belief that possessing demons under the torture of exorcisms and abuse lavished on them by the priest could be compelled to reveal facts beyond human capacity to ascertain much of the current medieval conceptions concerning the spiritual universe were derived from this source and the practice of thus seeking knowledge for laudable purposes was recognized as lawful provided it was done imperatively and not solicited as a favor even the gratification of idle curiosity with demons was merely a venial sin Froilan Diaz was therefore merely adopting a legitimate method when he suggested that the demons of Congas should be made to reveal the causes of the king's illness, which would be a step to its cure. Rocaberte eagerly assented and applied to the Dominican bishop of Oviedo, but that wary prelate hesitated to embark in a matter so dangerous and discouraged the suggestion. Diaz then addressed Arguel who at first refused but finally consented if he could have written commands from the inquisitor-general and confessor rocaberte accordingly wrote june eighteenth to inscribe the names of the king and queen on a piece of paper place it in his breast and ask the demon if either of them were suffering from sorcery diaz enclosed this in a letter of his own and arranged a cipher for the correspondence the obliging demon swore by God that the king had been bewitched at the age of fourteen to render him impotent and incapable of governing. With this, Arguel endeavored to withdraw, but Rocaberte and Diaz were insistent that he should ascertain further particulars and antidotes for the sorcery, and on September ninth he wrote that the spell was administered April third, sixteen seventy five, in a cup of chocolate by the queen mother in order to retain power the charm was made with the members of a dead man and the remedies were in unction with blessed oil purging and separation from the queen end of book four chapter one part one recording by kathleen nelson austin texas september two thousand and ten